0: So we read about Naaman. Let's go back through this passage. 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19. Okay, kids, were you paying attention? Who was Naaman? Oh, good, I got some hands. All right, who was Naaman? Who wants to answer? Moses, go ahead. Moses was a leper. Naaman was a leper. <laughs> Moses. I was like, why did I just say Moses? That's why, okay. <laughs> Naaman was a leper. That's correct, Moses. What else can we say about Naaman? He, he was the leader of the army of Aram. That's right. Um, so he was a, verse, verse 1 says, he was a valiant warrior. What do you think of that? a valiant warrior that's pretty great thing to be said about you right he was a great man with his master and highly respected captain of the army of the king of aram and then here's this here's this very interesting verse because remember aram is not God's people, right? And <clears throat> one of the other things that we can say about Aram, uh, about Naaman is that the Lord had given victory to Aram because of and, and through Naaman. Right there in verse 1, that's what it says. God was giving victory to Aram By Naaman, God's enemies, the Arameans, God was giving them victory. And so it was that they were successful in raiding God's people. And they took people out of their homes and kidnapped them, and kept them as slaves, including a little girl. This is an awful story. It's a tragedy. Verse 2, it's just a short verse. It's all summed up in a few words. The Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. It's not that Naaman was somehow this glorious, good man that, you know, in spite of the fact that his army did terrible things, you know, he would never have a slave girl from God's people, the Israelites. No, he did. He did. Unc- certainly this little girl was not the only one, but this particular little girl, she waited on Naaman's wife. What can we say about this little girl? We don't get we don't get much about her, right? We know that she was from the land of Israel. And if you just take a step back and remember what's going on in Israel at this time, you know there are not very many people who worship the Lord, right? There's, there's not a lot of uh, respect for the sons of the prophets, for example, right? There's not a lot of... There's not a lot of uh, Strength of faith in Israel. They don't have the worship of the true God at the center of their worship as a nation. They have the worship of golden calves. We don't have the uh, we don't have the the strength of leadership from a king that is holy and who's leading his people in strength and faith to worship the Lord, right? We don't have any of that in Israel. But there were some people, there were some people who loved the Lord. There were some people, this remnant that God was keeping among the Israelites. There were some people whom he had taught to worship him. And we've seen some of them. I think it was last week when we were talking about the man who brought the first fruit. During the famine, he brought in food. And when where did he bring the first fruits to the Lord? How did he bring the first fruits to the Lord? Do any of you kids remember, Andrew? He brought them to Elisha. That's right. There were some who were left. Why belabor this point? Well, because among that remnant, that's where you see this little girl taken. It's not just that she was one of the people of Israel. It's that she was one of the family of the few who cared about the Lord, who respected the prophet of God, of Yahweh, in the land. And you can tell because what does she say to her mistress in verse 3? I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. This story starts with a tragedy. A little girl from a faithful family who worshiped the Lord, who honored the prophet of the Lord, from God's people, taken from her family. And so this chapter starts. This chapter starts with a very strange few words being spoken by this girl. Because what do those words reveal? In spite of being taken captive, taken away from her parents... Kept from them permanently. What do you see? You see her love, don't you? You see her love for Naaman, her captor. You see her concern for him, love for her enemy. What else do you see? You see her simple, childlike faith, don't you? It makes sense that it would be childlike because she's still child. And it's really that simple to her, isn't it? I wish that my master, Captain, Naaman. I wish. that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Because he would make him better. How simple is that? How simple is that? Now, here's the crazy thing. You think, well, yeah, obviously. I mean, it's the prophet. We know he's going to get healed by the prophet. So that's what would have happened. If he was with the prophet in Samaria, he'd be healed. But this story is mentioned many, many, many years later. And it's mentioned by Jesus. And one of the things that he tells us is that there were many lepers in Israel at that time. And that none of them were getting healed. So it's not nearly as simple as all that. Well, there's no lepers in Israel because we've got a prophet there. And so, you know, if Naaman, would just, if Naaman was just in, in Israel, there, then, you know, obviously his lepers would be cured too. No, no, there were lepers in Israel. They were not getting healed. And yet this girl with simple faith says, I wish that my master were the prophet in Samaria because then he'd be cured of his leprosy. He'd heal him. Here's what I want everybody to realize about this girl. This girl is the first person in our story this morning who gets it. She gets it. So far, Naaman doesn't get it. Naaman's wife, we have no evidence that she gets it. And when we go into the story further, we come to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel doesn't get it. Doesn't get it. What does the king of Israel, how does the king of Israel comes in? come into the story? Well, uh, the news came to Naaman of what this little girl had said. And he's like, oh, there's this healing man over there. Maybe you could send me over there, king. And so the king writes letters to the king next door, the king that is... Uh, at risk of being dominated and destroyed by Aram, right? He writes letters of introduction. Here is my servant, Naaman. He has leprosy. Please make him better, thank you. Oh no. This is the response of the king of Israel, right? You have got to be kidding me. What am I supposed to do? I get it. I know what's going on. He's just trying to pick a fight. He's trying to start a war. but how am I supposed to how am I supposed to prevent it? It's, it's like being given an ultimatum. Heal my servant, or else. Heal my servant, or else. And the response is... Am I God? Let's, let's see, where are we? Verse 6. That's where the message comes to the king of Israel. Verse 7. King of Israel read the letter, tore his clothes, and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Let's go back to the beginning part. Am I God? To kill and to make alive? I can heal somebody from leprosy? Are you kidding me? I have, I have nothing. I have no ability to do this. I am not God. So there, there are many situations that you will face in life. Where people have expectations of you, where people make requests of you, where it seems like the only thing that can be done that would be a help, that would prevent trouble, is impossible. You can't actually accomplish it, right? Am I God? what is the king of Israel forgotten? He's not forgotten that he's God. He's not. He's forgotten that there is a God in Israel. Of all the stupid things to forget, right? Of all the crazy things to forget, this is what we forget. We're just like the king. We're faced with this terrible situation. It's like, ugh. How am I going to solve this? You're not because you're not God. Sometimes it takes you a while to remember that you're not God. And you think, oh my goodness, it's on me. Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to. Oh my goodness, the burden is impossible. How am I going to accomplish this? It's, It's impossible. Oh my goodness. What am I going to do? and then eventually you realize yeah i can't this is this is crazy this is i can't there's there's nothing there's nothing i can do because i'm not god and right then here's an idea remember god there is a god you have a god and not just a god The one true God. Turn to Him in prayer. Trust Him with the future, with your kingdom, with your family, with your health. Are you God that you'll be able to heal yourself? That you'll be able to make sure that everything goes well? No, you're not God. There is a God in Israel. But the king doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. He tears his clothes. He's in despair. He's horrified. And then Elisha. <laughs> Elisha sends his message. <clears throat> Why are you tearing your clothes? Send them to me. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Okay, good. Uh, Elisha's over that way. Yeah, go that way. Okay. So Naaman arrives, and as one of the commentators helpfully pointed out, you know this is a this is this is an arrival, right? This man has a retinue with him. You don't, uh, you don't have a letter from the king to his commander who has given him victory over all his enemies, okay? Letter of introduction to another king. You don't send him without protection, for starters, right? At least I wouldn't. He's got servants with him. Because that's the kind of man he is. Rich, powerful, lives of the famous, right? And so when he arrives, where does he arrive? He arrives at Elisha's house. And what do you think Elisha's house is like? Probably just little little... Uh, Brick ranch in the neighborhood, you know. Here comes the royal cavalcade, <laughs> pulling in. The neighbors are all looking out, like, what is going on out here, right? And I'm sure they're used to, uh, used to having Elisha around, and you never know what's going to happen when Elisha's around on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's not like he has royal favor. It's not like he has wealth, Right? It's not like he has political influence and power. No, he doesn't have any of that. This is like a clash of two completely different worlds. right? The world of on the outs, politically, Elisha, and the world of favored, powerful, military commander from another nation. Coming and making an official visit. And also with a request. So if he's coming with a request, we'll see next week, you know he's got gifts to give out to, right? He's got lots of stuff with him. He's ready. Big, big arrival. And so what does Elisha do? Naaman arrives. Elisha sent a messenger to him. He can't even be troubled to come to the front door of his house, his little house. I guarantee you, it's little. It doesn't say that, but you know, just. He can't even be bothered to come to the front door. He sends a messenger. And what does the messenger say? Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. Okay, bye. Now, would you be happy if you were Naaman? And you had shown up with the grand cavalcade, and that was the way that you were treated? I wouldn't. And he wasn't. He wasn't pleased at all. Verse 9 is where you get the grand cavalcade. He came with his horses and chariots, note the plurals, you know, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. He, he's, he's there at the doorway. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. Verse 11 Naaman was furious. Naaman was livid. Naaman was extremely put out. And he went away and said, Behold, I thought surely. Now now stop for a second right here. Is this not the way that we approach God with our requests? Surely this is how it will go. And we have it all planned out. The way that God should answer our prayer is this, that, and the other, right? And so here's how he starts. Surely, he will come out to me. This is how it's going to go. I'm going to find the prophet. The prophet will come out to me. And by the way, I was very helped by uh, the same commentator pointing out that the to me is emphasized in the Hebrew here, right? Right? to my greatness. He will come out to me. Here I am. I have come to him. He will come out to see me. He will come out to me. And what will happen? It'll be like all of the other grand, magical, healing services. Right? The hand will go out. God will be called down. Everybody will be amazed. The glory of God will be shown. The crowds will go wild. This is what it will be like. He will call on the name of the Lord, his God. He will wave his hand over the place. Now, is he not describing faith healing services today? I kid you not. He is describing what this is. Is there a reason that this is the way faith healing services look? It's because that's what people want. It's got to be marvelous and grand and glorious and powerful. It's got to show the importance of us and our troubles. It's got to show just the the majesty. He'll wave his hand over it. Now, maybe I could wave my hands more, keep your attention more, but Elisha does the opposite, doesn't he? Totally unexpected. Not what we are looking for. Certainly not what Naaman is looking for. There are times when the grandness and glory of the Lord is shown in majesty. When Elijah calls down fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice. God has stooped to our terms right to showing us that from the way we're looking for it that's that's what he's willing to give us if that's what it's going to take right this is not one of those times he just says go wash in the jordan seven times Your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Except he doesn't even say that. He sends a messenger to say that. And it, it, yeah, it infuriates Naaman. And furthermore, the Jordan's pretty pathetic compared to those other rivers. Really? A river? I got rivers. Yes, you do, but what you don't have is God. He still doesn't get it, does he? He still doesn't get it. He turned and went away in a rage. His servants come to him, though. His servants come to him, and and what do the servants say? The servants say, now, we've traveled all this way. You can, you can imagine them talking to each other first, right? Like, no, you go talk to him. No, I'll, no, you, okay, yeah, all right. But he's, but he's angry. It doesn't seem like the safest time to go talk to him. Yeah, but somebody's got to go talk to him, right? I mean, after all, we've come all this way, and it eh, can't hurt anything. I mean, it's just going, it's not like the river's going to kill him. Can't can't hurt anything. Let's, why don't we at least try it? So the servants come to him. And they say, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Yeah, he would have. He's going to acknowledge that. Well, yeah, yeah, you know. First, go and pick three leaves from the impossible tree on the top of Mount Forever High, right? Okay. And then go and find, and this is like Greek mythology, right? Then go and find the, okay, you know, I'm going to do it all. But instead you're just been told to go and wash in the river. How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So, he's a wise man and he listens to his servants. But that does require him to humble himself, doesn't it? He does really have to humble himself to just do what the messenger sent from the prophet who wouldn't even come to the door to see him, told him to do. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Miracle. Boom. After he humbles himself. Up until this point, Naaman has not gotten it. He's angry at the way the prophet treats him. He's angry at the mundane instruction, the silliness and and littleness of it. He believes it won't accomplish anything for him. But he listens. Dale Ralph Davis writes about this. He says, I don't think I am spiritualizing to point out how Naaman's complaints are the very objections many people make to the gospel. Naaman, and perhaps you, don't like the humiliation of the gospel nor the simplicity of the gospel. Wash and be clean nor the narrowness of the gospel. What does he mean by the narrowness? He, he's talking about, you've got to use this river. In this passage. It's the narrowness of the instruction. It's this way, and that's it. He continues, It was too much for a man who thought he was somebody. And I would continue that to so the way that we want to be saved, the way we want to God, God to work. Do this great thing and be saved. Well, yeah, I would. Sure, I would do a great thing if that's what it would... If, 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 if God just said, do a great thing and then you'll be saved, then, then I'd do it, Right? But instead, God says, Wash and be clean. Wash and be clean. Is this not what baptism is? Washing? Repent and be saved. Oh, I've got to humble myself. You see, it's the same things. Oh, and also, this is the only way. No man comes to the Father but by me. Ah, it's narrow, isn't it? The gospel is narrow. Oh, it's simple. Oh, it's humiliating. Now Naaman gets it. And what a fantastic, glorious thing. Who are the two people who get it in this story? I mean, Elisha, okay. Who are the two other people who get it? The little slave girl and the strong, mighty captain of the foreign army, Naaman. The Israelites don't get it. King of Israel doesn't get it. His counselors don't get it. Nobody else in the story gets it. Even Gehazi, Elisha's servant, as we'll see next week, doesn't get it. Now Naaman gets it. God alone is God. He's the only way. He's the only one. We owe him our entire allegiance. And he knows his life is not just changed because he no longer has an affliction of the skin. His life has been changed because now he has come face to face with the true God. And he'll never be the same after this. And it doesn't matter where he goes. It doesn't matter what he does from now on. He knows he's changed. He's different because he has encountered God. How sad that it's the foreign commander who encounters God and that so many of God's people have not encountered God in Israel. Have you encountered God? Have you been changed by that encounter? If you have encountered Him, you will be changed. There is no coming face to face with that demand wash and be clean. Repent and be saved. There's no coming face to face with that miracle of suddenly being clean. The impossible to wash off. The corruption that you can't get rid of. That no matter how many times you wash, it's still there. That's leprosy. You can't wash it off. It's stuck to you. It's part of you. It's growing in you and on you. This is our sins. How could washing do anything for us? God makes you clean. And you realize, oh, I've been changed. I've had the sin washed off me. It's no longer in me. It's no longer on me. I'm different now. Naaman was different. God is not constrained by our location, by who our people are, what our circumstances are. He's not constrained by how we've been wronged. He's not constrained by how powerful or powerless. We are. You you read this story and you can't help but see that God is at work in bringing that little girl to Naaman through the wicked acts of wicked men and then of using her words to drive Naaman across the boundary, across the border, into another land, into his land, where he will encounter Elisha, who will not be at all what he was hoping for or expecting, but who will only make it all the more clear, God is who you are here for. His work is what you are looking for. Not me. God. He's at work in the slave girl, and he's at work in Naaman. Naaman, who will only worship God from now on. Who wants to take two mule loads full of dirt back with him. Now, you might just wonder what in the world is going on here, right? You gotta remember this is still in the Old Testament. And by that I mean, God's people are still set apart, separate, given their own land. There's a lot of this physical reality shown. He does not want to be totally separated. The land is, the the dirt that he's taking back with him is not for him to make uh, sacrifices on. It goes, if you read, he says, um, verse 17, Please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord no he's not going to raise some sort of altar so that he can worship the other god and it's not some sort of um, it's not some sort of uh, pagan understanding of how god's work that you know you've got to have that the god is somehow attached to the land and that, you know you've got their, your god there and so if you can get the land over there you can get this is what a lot of people posit and and it's it's silliness Because he just said, there's only one God. I understand, there's only God now. (laughs) No, why does he want the dirt? He wants to be one of God's people. His circumstances don't allow him to be in God's land. But he knows, this is where I am now. This is what I'm a part of now. This is where I belong. The Lord's land. Elijah, I mean, Elisha, I wrote that wrong. Elisha gives his blessing to Naaman go in peace. And he doesn't just give his blessing, go in peace, with regard to the dirt. He gives his blessing with regard to an issue of conscience. What a helpful, helpful story. I have heard of people interpreting this as the failure of Naaman to come to actual true faith. But I don't think that's what you're seeing here. And I, the main evidence I would point to is Elisha simply responding, go in peace. Go in peace. What is this issue of conscience? He says, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rahman to worship there, and he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rahman. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He has no choice in the matter. He's his king's number one man. The king still worships Ramon. He's still going to be doing things in service to Ramon. And he's going to be expecting Naaman to be there with him. It's very easy for us to look at this and to say, oh, Naaman, we thought you got it, but clearly you don't. It's very easy for us to look at Naaman and say, you know, Real faith would look like just moving to Israel or at least quitting your job or any number of other things, right, that we can we can think of that that seem like better solutions. Elijah Elisha says, Go in peace. Elisha says, Go in peace. In response to that You can say that Elisha is <clears throat> dismissing Naaman and it just doesn't matter. Whatever. Goodbye, see ya. <laughs> but no, In the context, what we're dealing with is a land that has forgotten God. When Jesus brings it back up, he says, you know, it was Naaman, the leper, who was healed, not the people of Israel. Why? Because this is a judgment on Israel. That he's pouring out his blessing on a foreigner, and that the foreigner recognizes, here is God. And that Israel doesn't. And so when Jesus points this out to the Israelites, they become angry. When I pointed out to people in the church, what should it look like? How, what does it mean? How do I point out that we need to be like Naaman, that we need to not respond like the Israelites? All I can think to say is here you are. You are in a service of worship to the one true, holy, loving God. And I guarantee you if somebody who did not know God and did not know that there was freedom from sin, did not know that there was forgiveness, that there was salvation with him, that he might be feared, I guarantee you... That when that news first breaks over somebody, the way that the waters of the Jordan broke over Naaman and and he was changed, that they'd look at some of you here the way you don't even notice that you're at church. Don't even notice what God has given to you. Don't even, don't even bother to respond with shouts of joy and thanksgiving and songs of praise. And what would it be for them to look around and to see A bunch of people who claim the name of God and don't get it. Who don't care. Who don't notice. Naaman gets it. Even down to the end of caring about exactly how he's supposed to keep living his life and what he's supposed to do. This doesn't feel right. But I. Can I be pardoned for this? Elisha says, go in peace. The point is not to say, well, you can do anything, you know, and then just ask forgiveness later. The point I would make is if you have issues of conscience, don't deal with them yourself, put them to your church leaders and let them bear the weight for you? Let them say to you, go in peace, or no, you better not. (laughs) And I say that not because I like making those judgments. Believe me, I don't. And you have, some of you brought these kinds of questions to me and asked me and asked the elders, what should I do? The company I work for celebrates gay pride month. Do I just need to quit? right? What am I supposed to do when my entire job is set up that part of it is serving the God of Ramon? What am I supposed to do when, when, as I work, I'm going to be working in ways that are promoting wickedness because I'm helping a company and that company is promoting wickedness. What am I supposed to do? We can make the application here. Safely. The same as we can from the New Testament soldiers that were not told to quit, though they were working for wicked Nero. Okay. The same way that Daniel, who worked for wicked, wicked Nebuchadnezzar, Generally, you don't have to quit. That's important to realize. There will come times that it's time to quit. But most of the time what you see in the Bible is God working through men, staying at their jobs and now being changed, being different, living a different life. Will you care about what you should do, like Naaman? Will you be changed? Do you get it? Or will you continue to just live life like the rest of the Israelites, as though something amazing hasn't happened, as though God hasn't revealed himself, as though God hasn't been at work when somebody repents of their sin and is cleansed, I hope you stand up and cheer because God's done something great.